Have you noticed that um, there are many questions in life that are difficult to answer? How many of you have kids or grandkids that ask you questions and you don't know the answers to them? Uh, when our kids were growing up, our kids would ask questions, but especially Jeremy. And his son, Will, takes right after him. And Jeremy would ask a question, we would answer it, and invariably his response was, how do you know? Well, how do you answer that? So there were really, really tough questions in life. I mean, here's some of the questions that I struggle with personally. Why do we say an alarm clock is going off when really it's going on? Right? I mean, that, that's a hard question. Why is it that we say people drive on a parkway but park on a driveway? Or for me, the harder one is, why do people say I slept like a baby last night? When everybody knows that a baby's awake every couple of hours pooping and throwing up. Or this is, this is one that I really thought was more for John, okay? If you throw a cat out of a car, does that make it kitty litter? I, I just thought that was John's kind of joke. And I thought, yeah. Yeah. The world is full of tough questions, hard things, challenging things that we're faced with. And this morning, I want us to start looking at a book of the Bible that actually is full of questions. Um, if you were to read it today, chapters 1, 2, and 3, because it's only a three-chapter book, but if you were to read it today, you would feel like you were reading your Facebook posts. It's full of questions just like that which you see on a day-by-day -day basis. The driving uh, direction of this book has to do with this. Why doesn't God make everything right and fair? Or if you want to be a little bit more gut-wrenchingly, brutally honest, it's why isn't God fair? Why doesn't God do something to fix this world? And the name of the book, as you can see, is the book Habakkuk. Or if you're from a different part of the world, perhaps you pronounce it Habakkuk. Whichever, that is the book we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks, today and two more weeks. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can get there. Habakkuk 1, 2 and 3, the prophet says this, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you don't come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. Tell me that that doesn't sound very familiar. I mean, all you had to do was follow even a smidgen of the hearings over the Supreme Court nominee, and you would know everybody loves to argue and fight. Here's this prophet, and you have to keep that in mind, by the way. Keep in mind that the book that we're written, reading is written by a prophet. This isn't just some Joe Blow off the street who's trying to get his 10 seconds of fame on CNN. This is a prophet, a man who knows and loves God. So keep that in your mind throughout this whole series. This is a God follower who is struggling with some questions that he doesn't see any answers for. And, and his question is basically this. God, why is it that it seems like the evil prospers, whereas the righteous suffer? 
And that comes really out of Psalm 73, where the psalmist at that time, Asaph, says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What do you do when it seems like wrong wins and right fails again and again and again? We're faced with questions like, God, I gave you my heart and I sincerely try my best to follow you. But why is it so much a struggle for me just to get by? When my, to say it politely, my loser of a neighbor who doesn't care one thing about you seems to be doing just fine. Why is it that I work hard and I'm honest, but my coworker who sucks up to the boss constantly and basically does nothing is the one who gets the promotion? God, why is it that I tried to raise my kids as well as I could? I know I wasn't perfect, but I did my best to raise them, to follow you. But my kids are constantly struggling where their kids, and they weren't even engaged with their kids. Their kids seem to be doing okay. How come I try to do what your word says financially? I pay my tithe and I give my offerings, but I'm struggling just to have gas money to go to work. Whereas they're driving a nice brand new car and they seem to be doing just fine. How is that right, God? Or if I could boil it down even farther, it'd be things like, how come when they pray, they seem to get answers, but when I pray, nothing seems to happen? God, how come you don't make these headaches go away? I've prayed and i prayed and i prayed. And you said you love your children, but I'm still overwhelmed at times, stuck in a dark, quiet room because of these headaches? How come I battle with depression? I don't want to, but every day it's a fight just to get up. How come this one that I love, this one that means more to me than about anyone else on earth, is struggling so? How is that right when I've done my best to serve you? God, why won't you help my marriage? When I got married, I expected more than this. I wanted more than this. Why won't you help to change my marriage? God, it seems like you could do something, but you don't. Why? Do you even care? Where, when, where were you when all of this was happening to me? How could you let this happen? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you stop it? Those last few lines, by the way, came directly off of a Facebook post from someone this week. Word for word. Habakkuk the prophet, a man incredibly in love with God. He had a rich faith. But like so many of us, he was faced with situations that didn't add up. It's not what you would have thought would happen. And maybe for some of you, that's kind of where you're at today. You've tried hard. You've tried your best. You do love God. But life hasn't gone the way you expected it would, the way you hoped it would, the way you prayed it would. 
Now, what I want to do just very, very briefly is I want to give you a context for this book because it's important. Um, the Bible, as most of you know, is made up of a lot of books. How many books are in the Bible? 66. How many are in the Old Testament? 39. How many are in the New Testament then? 39 from 66 is 27. Thank you, young man. It took a young man who actually could do math in his head. So the Bible is made up of all of these 66 books divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we actually took the books and we divided them kind of by parts a little bit. And I'm just going to give them to you super briefly, just so that you know. We kind of did it by types. So we took the first five books of the Bible because they all dealt with the law. So the first five books are called the law or the Pentateuch. Penta means five, of course. So the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch or the law. Then the second set of books are called the historical books. There are books like Joshua and Judges and the Kings and Chronicles and all of those kind of books. They give you some historical background for the Old Testament. Then they're followed by what are called the poetry books, like Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those books are called the poetry books. And then the next group are called the major shift. They are the major prophets, five major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Now again, when I say five major pro uh, prophets, the truth is Lamentations and Jeremiah kind of go together, almost like bookends of the same guy, because the same guy wrote them, Jeremiah. But then those five major prophets are followed by what are called 12 minor prophets. They didn't make the big league, so they're, they're, they're kind of on their own. But basically, the minor prophets are shorter in length, mostly, than the major prophets. So that's why they're called minor. And out of that group, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. Uh, and of the 12 minor prophets, we probably know less about Habakkuk than most any other of the minor prophets, but we do know this. He was a prophet. And a prophet is someone who speaks to the people on behalf of God. A prophet is somebody where God comes to them and says something to them, and he says, I want you to tell my people this. And then the prophet would go and say, thus says the Lord. So he speaks to the people on behalf of God. And this book was written around 600 B.C. Now that probably doesn't mean anything to you. It's 600 years before Christ. But at that time in Israel and Judah's history, the nation had become very, very corrupt. Common people felt like there was no justice to be found in the land. You did what was right, and the courts would rule against you. You did everything in your power to live holy and godly, and it seemed like the odds were stacked against you. Corruption within the government, within the leadership, was rampant. If that's not like our day, I don't know what is. That's what Habakkuk the prophet was facing. Bad people were doing worse and even good people weren't doing so well. There were problems within the land. And Habakkuk, the prophet of God, the God follower, the God lover, comes to God and he says, why aren't you doing anything about this mess? And there's a couple of things I want you to get out of this whole series. And this one line I want you to get. So if you take notes, write this down. I think the question why is entirely appropriate. I think it's fair, reasonable, and right 
to at times ask God why. That doesn't mean you're always going to get an answer. It doesn't mean you're always going to like the answer if you get it. But I think it's fair to ask why. I think the struggle is that for too many of us, we're afraid. We're afraid that that's being disrespectful, dishonoring. When if you read the Bible, you see people did it all throughout the Bible. Well, God speaks to the prophet, and he says this. These people that I love, they're becoming increasingly wicked. And for their own good, I'm going to discipline them. And Habakkuk the prophet probably thought, yeah, that's right, you should. It is bad out there. You should do something about it. But then God goes on and he says, I'm going to take some people who are far worse than even these people. And I'm going to use them to discipline my people. And Habakkuk's like, "Um, God, point point of order here? I don't think that's right. How can it be right that you would use a more wicked people to discipline your own people who are doing wicked? And he was struggling with God. And for Habakkuk, it's kind of like, in some ways, he is like the ideal guy to struggle with this. Because the name Habakkuk literally means to embrace or to wrestle. And the entirety of the book of Habakkuk is a man who is wrestling with God While he's wrestling, he's trying to embrace the truth that God is good. But I'm still struggling. I'm wrestling with God. Now, let me just tell you up front, we're going to have today and then the next two weeks over the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Um, What you're not going to get is a sitcom sermon. You know what a sitcom sermon is. It's just like the sitcoms. You know what you get in a sitcom? You, you know, you have the show start. There's a little bit of drama. Then there's uh, a little bit of humor mixed in. And by the end, with 30 minutes gone by, with the commercials included, you have basically tied the whole thing up with a bow and everything's all resolved. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen ever in the book of Habakkuk. In fact, when you get done, I think Habakkuk is far more like real life. Habakkuk starts with some tension. The tension increases. Then there's stressors added into the mix. Then there's confusion. Then there's a little bit of anxiety and fear. And then you're left with more questions. And when you get all done, although you want a nice sappy story or a poem that can make you feel better, there isn't any. You're left with your questions. That's the book of Habakkuk. And that's kind of what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the questions that we ask and how we handle them. Now, with that being built, look at Habakkuk chapter 1. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to put it up on the screen for you, starting with verse 1. Look at it. It's on the screen for you. Can you put that up there? No, verse 1. Can you start with verse 1? Did I put that up there? You don't see one. Okay, look at verse 1 in your Bibles. Some of you guys have different translations, I hope anyways, because I, I like hearing different translations. I read several this week. It starts off by saying this. The what? I'm sorry, what? The burden. Somebody have a different translation? The oracle? Anybody else? The vision. Thank you. The word that is used there, burden or vision or oracle or prophecy, is actually the Hebrew word Massah. Massah. Just say Massah. Don't you feel smarter? Massah. The word Massah literally means a message of doom. 
And that's kind of the caption for the entire book. Think of that as like, I'm going to give you the theme for the entire book. It is the message of doom. So this is a message, a prophecy of judgment that is coming, that God is giving over his nation. And the interesting thing is that as God gives this, Habakkuk feels comfortable enough with his relationship with God to actually push back a little bit to challenge God himself. And by the way, he's not the only prophet to do that. Jonah did it. Jeremiah did it. Jeremiah sits out in the hash heap and says, God, how is this right? And he weeps before God. Abraham, in the Old Testament, farther back, Abraham, knowing that God is going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, comes to God and says, God, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50? And he begins to dicker with God over the lives of those people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. He's basically saying the world doesn't make sense to him. And he's wondering why God doesn't do something to fix it. Um, If you were to fast forward today, these are just some things that I saw over recent days in our news. He would say something like this, God, how is it right that that guy who already had three convictions of DWI is allowed to get back in his car and drive down the road, crash into another car and kill that little four-year-old boy? How is that right, God? Or, how is it right that this girl who is only 18 years old hops from bed to bed, getting pregnant time after time, aborting every single child, while we as a couple desperately want a child and we can't even get pregnant one time? How is that right, God? Or, God, we sent our kids to school Because it's the right thing to do. We want them to learn. We want them to mature. But how is it right that you allow some angry 14-year-old to come in with his gun and to shoot up the school, injuring many and killing eight? And that's, of course, not even touching terrorism or corruption in our government. And because of all that was going on, Habakkuk draws a conclusion. Look at it in verse 4. Habakkuk draws this conclusion. Therefore... The law is powerless. Have you ever thought that, by the way? What good is the law? doesn't seem to do anything. Not anything right. The law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. You can't find justice anywhere. The wicked surround. They overwhelm the righteous. And perverse judgment proceeds. Have you ever looked at some of the judgments that have come down out of the courts and wondered, What in the world are they living with? How can you make that judgment? How is that right? How is that fair? How is that just? That's exactly where Habakkuk was. Habakkuk had three problems with God, and if you're taking notes, you can just kind of take these down real quick. The first problem he had is, God, you don't seem to care at all. Because if you cared, you'd do something about it. You obviously don't care. Number two, God, you could, but you don't. 
That's what he's really saying. If you do care, you're not doing anything about it. It's, it's kind of like on one hand saying, God, you can. You're able. On the other hand, he's saying, but God, you don't. Why don't you? And then thirdly, what you are doing doesn't seem right. I mean, that's all in the book of Habakkuk. Go back and read it yourself. He's saying, God, if I were you, I wouldn't do it this way. If I were Chris Almighty, I would not make that decision. I would do something different. Now, let me ask you, and be honest, how many of you have ever thought things like that? Raise your hands if you would. How many of you have ever thought that? Like, God, I don't like this. It doesn't seem right. And you're Christians. You're God believers. You're God followers. I mean, think about it. You raised your hand saying, God, I don't like how you're doing things. I think God's going to give you a flat tire on the way home for that. I'm pretty sure. Either that or hemorrhoids, something. I don't know. Um, even godly people can struggle, can question things. There are times, I believe, when it is appropriate to say, God, I don't understand. There's times when I think it's right to question God. And I think that's even a significant part of your faith journey of growing in God. Being able to not challenge God as much as dialogue with God. Actually have a conversation where you're saying, God, this doesn't seem right. How is this fair? How is this appropriate? How is this a good answer to this situation? I talked with somebody recently, and uh, they shared that in their church, they had two families that were pregnant. Two families. And the one family had had some tests done and found out their child was not expected to live, that it would probably be stillborn, and that if it did live, it would have significant handicap. It would be basically, to use our old way of talking about things, it would be retarded. They would be challenged. This other family had every test going and everything was fine. They were excited. They're going to have a baby. They're all thrilled. They're first baby. Both of them first babies. They both were born at about the same time. This family over here that had a perfectly healthy child, as far as they knew, was born stillbirth, dead. This baby, which every doctor that they went to said this baby would not live, if it did see the light of day, it would be retarded, was born perfectly normal without a problem. And in their church, they're reeling. What do you do with that? How do you handle those kinds of hard situations? I would recommend that you... Take some time and read the Psalms because one-third of the Psalms, one-third of the Psalms are the psalmists saying, God, I need your help. I'm in agony here. At one point, the psalmist says something like this. He says, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, can I be your enemy for a while? Because things just didn't seem fair. Read the book of Job. It's like, Here's Job. The Bible says he did everything right. And look what happened to him. He lost his family. He lost all of his stuff. And yet, can you still look to God? You say, well, that's just those Old Testament sinners. Well, go into the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus in the garden says, God, this is overwhelming to me. I don't know if I can handle this. Can you let this cup pass for me? And God basically says, no. You're going to go through it. 
And then while he's going through it, obeying God on the cross, God turns his face away from him and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus himself asks hard questions. Why have you turned your back on me? God, I thought I did everything you said to do. It doesn't seem right. I would suggest to you that even sincere lovers of God need to sometimes ask hard questions. The why questions. I don't get it. Help me to understand, God, how this is right. That was Habakkuk's foundational challenge. I mean, I could understand wicked people getting their comeuppance. But why are the righteous suffering? suffering? Now, years ago, I'm talking about back in the 1970s, my father-in-law, David Edwards, uh, who was probably the best preacher I have ever heard in my life, he began to talk about something that I had never heard of before, and I don't know if it was original with him or not, but he began to talk about the frustration gap that Christians have. It's the distance between theology and reality. It's the difference between theory, what I think about God and what is, should happen, and when the rubber actually meets the road. And he called it the frustration gap. It's that place of frustration in our soul when what I think should be doesn't happen. And I get upset. I get angry. Another friend of mine uses a different analogy that I actually like a lot. He says, this is where we have the potential of moving from mastery to mystery. Now, let, let me explain it this way to you. Um, when you made a decision to follow Jesus, you, you didn't know God at all, but God comes on the scene. You encounter God for the first time and you are thrilled. Your sins are forgiven. You're washed clean. Something in you is new. You are a new creation. You are excited. You're thrilled. You're happy. And everything in your life begins to change. You're excited. You're, 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 you face each day with new hope. You have a relationship with God, and He walks with you, and He talks with you. Yes, God actually speaks to you. You discover that God is real. <clears throat> and it seems like you barely have to think about it, let alone pray about it. And it happens for you. It's like, this is the way life should be. I'm excited. I mean, I, I go to Walmart, and, and I, it's Labor Day weekend, and the thing is packed like crazy, but I see a cloud over in the sky, and I think, man, it could rain sometime. And I just, in, under my breath, I say, God, it'd be nice to get a parking spot nearer. And you pull into the parking lot, and you get the parking spot that is closest to the door. I mean, it's like no matter what you do, everything is going your way. You come to church on a Sunday, every song and every sermon touches your heart deeply. It's like, this is made for me. And you're excited about that, and you think, this is how life ought to be. But then you walk with God a little bit longer, and you discover things aren't going quite as easily as they used to. You go to Walmart, and... Uh, it's the slowest day possible. There's no one who wants to be there. We're talking about Thanksgiving Day before it's actually Black Thursday. It's, it's like no one's there, but all of the front spaces are taken, and you can pray for all you're worth, and the nearest spot you can find is across at the Bank of Castile. You have a headache, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you end up with pneumonia. It's just like, God, what's the deal? This isn't what I thought my system was supposed to be. And at this point in time, you have one of two choices. Most people have one of two choices. 
you either double down where you begin to try harder. You figure, okay, the problem here is I must not have all of the ingredients right. Woohoo! You, you double down and you try harder. You figure, okay, if I could do everything just right, then God has to do it. If I put my coin in the slot machine, God is obligated to give me an answer. So you try harder. You know, somebody gets a little bit sick and the doctor says you have this. And you say, no, nope, no, nope, not me. I don't. God's better than that. I'm not going to have that kind of confession. You double down. You try harder. You, you, you work harder at this than ever before. And, and you figure if I can get every ingredient of this cake right, then I will get what I want. You try harder. Others at this stage in life just say, well, then forget it, God. I thought that if I did this, you would do that. You're not keeping your end of the bargain, so I'm going to take my ball and go home. I quit. And for some of you, you know people like that. You know people that, on the front end, followed God. But when things didn't go the way they thought they should, you started to face challenges and struggles. You just quit. And for some of you, you might be in that place today where you're struggling with things. Uh, uh, you, you know that it's not how it should be, but you're struggling with a crisis of belief. That's what Henry Blackaby calls it. God, I thought we were friends. I thought I was your child, and I thought you would do this for me, and it's not. At this point in time, that's the mastery. You, you try to master this whole thing called being a Christian, figuring that if I get everything that I do right, God must do that. And i got to tell you, for most of us, we live our whole lives like that, and we never get beyond it. We figure as long as I do exactly what God says, if I tithe, God has to do this. If I Serve. God has to do this. God, after all, I'm doing children's ministry. I'm doing a deaconing. Uh, I'm serving. God, you can't ask more of me than that. Therefore, I need this from you. And then you find things don't always work out that way. And you either double down or you quit. Or, as my friend says, you can make the choice of moving from mastery to mystery. It's where you learn to embrace the mystery of your questions, of saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand this at all. I don't even like this. But God, I do know this. I know you. And I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stick to you no matter what. God takes us on this journey of faith where we are left with more questions than answers. And we don't get it. But we continue to walk with him. We embrace him. We do the Habakkuk thing. We lay hold of him. Like Jacob did. He said, I will not let you go. And I got to tell you, just even knowing that doesn't make life easier. You're still going to face stuff. I wish I could tell you that if you could understand this, then from this point on, everything would go easier. It doesn't. You're still going to face hard things. You're still going to face challenges. Sometimes even greater challenges. But I can promise you this. If you will lay hold of God and not give up, he will bring you to a place of intimacy like you have never imagined. Everyone that I know of who has gone through, quote, hell and back, while keeping their eyes on Jesus, 
has come out the other side with a deeper, richer, more vibrant faith in God. And that's what he offers you. He doesn't offer you answers. He doesn't offer you ease. He offers you his presence. He offers you himself. That's what this is about. Um, <clears throat> James puts it this way. Brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of any kind because you know that the testing of your faith develops character inside of you. Um, an old saint years ago, his name was Paul Bilheimer, wrote a poem that I love, and it says this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Some of you right now are in the midst of Habakkuk chapter 1. And many people walk away from God in chapter 1. Chapter 1, if I could title chapter 1, it's all about wondering. Wondering. God, how, why, what, how come, why not? It's all about wondering. God, where are you and what are you doing? Look at God's response in verse 5. Habakkuk 1.5, look among the nations and watch and be utterly astounded for I will work a day, a work, a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. Now that sounds good. Sounds like, whoa, thank God he's about to do something. But what Habakkuk doesn't realize is, no, what God really means is if you knew what I was about to do, you would be so confused you would think you had lost your mind and I had to. That's what he means. This isn't going to make sense to you. God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. That's what he says. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. And these Chaldeans, by the way, you need to know about the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were a part of the Babylonian Empire. But these guys weren't just like uh, great warriors. That's not what I mean. These guys were vicious. They were brutal. They were cruel. I mean, they, they had ways of doing things that caused the enemy, before they ever went to battle, to be afraid that if they were to lose, they would tell their cohorts in battle, they would tell their partner, kill me before they take me. Because these guys are so cruel. It would be like God saying, I need to discipline the United States of America, and I'm going to do it through Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda. That's the kind of enemy that he was talking about. He says, I'm going to raise up all of these people. Look at it in verses 6 through 11. He says, I'm going to raise these people up. And they're going to go through the land proud and arrogantly, but they're going to bring discipline to my people. And if you're at all normal like Habakkuk was, you're left confused. You're left wondering, how can that be the best answer? When you're in chapter 1, when you're not sure what to believe anymore, you want to believe, but you've got questions. Here's what I want you to have as a takeaway today. This is my very simple takeaway. I believe that a deeply committed believer can have simultaneous questions and faith. You can believe in God. You can love God and still not understand what in the world he's doing and why he's letting this happen. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus comes upon a scene where there's a father whose son was demon-possessed. This demonic presence would throw his son into the fire. and it was, it was a horrid situation. 
And this man comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, can you do anything about this? And Jesus said, dude, I'm the, guy, man. I'm the man. There's nothing that's impossible for me. I can do anything. And, but then Jesus asked this. He says, do you believe? And I love the man's response. He says, I do believe. Kind of. Sort of. Try to. Isn't that what he said? He said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And did Jesus hold that against him somehow? Because he, I believe, but I don't understand. I know you can do anything, but you haven't yet with him. I believe, but what about that? What I want you to catch this morning is that if you walk with God long enough, you will come through some deep valleys and some treacherous mountains and you'll be left questioning and wondering. God, why are you letting my kids go through this? It just doesn't seem right. I thought once we started to follow you, everything would go well. I do believe. But God, help me to understand. Why, why aren't you doing anything about this situation? I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to follow you. But I'm hurting. And then Habakkuk in verse 12. It's kind of like he, he does the same thing this father does. He, he's blending together his faith with his doubts. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, the Holy One? We shall not die. That's his faith. God, I trust you. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You're of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? Clear statements of faith, but also his questions. If you're in chapter 1, I've got some bad news for you. Chapter 2 is no better. Chapter 1 deals with wondering and wrestling. Chapter 2 deals with watching and waiting. You're just left holding your own, hoping you don't get washed away by the storms, watching and waiting. But chapter 3 turns things around just a little bit. I love reading Habakkuk this week. You compare the first, like, four verses, five verses, with the last five, six verses of the book. What a difference. Chapter 3 ends with worship. He says, I, I don't know what else to do, God. I've kept my eyes on you. I have nowhere else. It, it's kind of like when Peter had the situation where all the crowds were following Jesus and they began to filter away. They began to run away because Jesus didn't act the way they thought he would. He didn't say things the way they thought he should. And they left him. And then Jesus says to his disciples, are you too going to leave me? And Peter says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's kind of where you're at in chapter 1. God, I don't understand. I don't like it. I don't get it but I have nowhere else to go. You're it. No matter what's going on around you, 
And I don't know what situations you're facing that are causing questions for you. Challenges. Doubts, fears, anxieties. What do you do? You do the Habakkuk thing. You wrestle with God. You lay hold of God. You say, God, I don't understand. You tell God the truth, by the way. I think sometimes we think, I can't say this kind of stuff out loud. I think it inside, but I don't want to say it out loud. As if somehow God doesn't know what you think inside. You tell God the truth. God, during this time uh, with uh, our daughter, um, with her pregnancy, it seemed like every day there was something else coming up. You know, it started with, you know, her pelvis disorder, then uh, cholestasis. I mean, just it was just one thing after another. And everything was debilitating in itself. Everything was overwhelming. It was hard, let alone the fact that you have two other little toddlers that you're trying to watch. It was just, it was a hard season. And I found myself at times angry at God. Saying, God, this isn't right. This was like a miracle baby to us. I can remember when she was born and Karen looking at the doctor and the doctor said she had a little girl and Karen saying, we can't have little girls. We only have boys. She was like a miracle in some ways for us. And then the enemy, I believe, tried to snuff her life out back in 2008. And yet God saved her. God, this isn't right. That you, this is happening to her again. But I want to suggest to you, I think God was okay with that. I don't think God was threatened by my frustration, my anger, my fear. But nor do I think he was in any way anxious about my questions. Because I went to him with them, just like the psalmist did. He went to God. And he said, God, it doesn't seem right. And sometimes God answers, sometimes God doesn't answer. Sometimes all you're left with is God. Is that enough? That's what chapter 1 is about. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And this is the point in the sermon where you would want me to tell you a nice story that makes you feel good, either laugh or cry, one or the other. But because Habakkuk doesn't end that way, neither do I. So would you stand with me? Next week we'll deal with chapter 2, which deals with watching and waiting. And then the next week, chapter 3, worship. Let me give to you, as I talked last week, a very brief benediction. So if you would, if you would close your eyes, and if you are able, would you just put your hands in a receiving mode? I want to pronounce a blessing over you that I believe is from the Lord, and it's directly from his word. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love, of God our Father and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you.